Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Good morning again. Um, Romans chapter 15. Excuse me. And in a minute, we're going to begin reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 13. And as you're turning there, you're going to notice that there's two prayers in there. <laughs> and as hard as this was for me this week to interpret, I, now I know why there were t- two prayers in there. So it's, it's a lot. Um, I found it difficult personally to understand, so I had to just do a lot of praying and do a lot of working. And hopefully, um, as we pray and ask God for his blessing, we'll, um, we'll have a, a good grasp of what's being said here to the praise of God's glory and for your good. All right, verse 1, chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, which would be Old Testament in that context, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's, let's just pray. Father, please, please have mercy on us now. These verses are so important. I think, God, I think they're strategic for us as your church they were hard to understand for, to me, so if you don't act now, then nothing of lasting value will come. And Father, your son is our prophet, our priest, our king, and our righteousness. And therefore, for his sake, please give what we cannot create nor maintain as you bless your people in the hearing and the preaching of your word. Amen. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that Jesus was extraordinary in many, many ways. One of my favorite books of all time has the title, uh, The Incomparable Christ. 
and it's true. There's no one that could compare with him. But if you were thoughtful and you were to judge his life by the standards of the world, by most accounts, he would be considered pretty much a failure. I mean, he was poor. He was rejected. Think of this. When he began his ministry, he had more disciples with him than when he ended. He died a difficult and a shameful death, and in the ways that others would pursue comfort and power and respect, he, he did not think. He who had all power, right, gave himself up to the privileges of his power so that he could save people who really didn't like him, sinners. Now, in contrast to that, in our society, and probably most societies, strength, or at least imagined strength, is, is applauded, and weakness is seen as either undesired or some kind of deficiency. Because if you think about it, strength, or so it says, or being in a position of strength, in, in most places means authority. It means you have the power to control, that you are strong enough to have what pleases you, and in other words, to do what pleases you. And, the, and therefore, this person, this strong person, has freedoms and rights because they're strong. And with all that strength, if your Bible's open, verse 1, instead of doing verses 1 and 2, they, in essence, they could please themselves. They could please themselves in multi-sided ways, and every little bit and piece of their life. I mean, even as I think about it, even religion, sometimes even Christianity, people approach it like they, they simply want improvement. They want to be empowered. That's a word that we often use, empowered. Actually, I was on Instagram yesterday, and I read that word from a religious organization, empowerment. Because the thinking goes something like, with strength and power comes freedom, comes liberty, um, no more weakness. You know, you won't be tied down by those things that tie the weak people down. And so the approach that is often taken is not like, God have mercy on me, a sinner. But rather, okay, I'll do X and I'll do Y and I'll do Z religious thing. And by the way, you know, pastor, you teach us that stuff. You teach us that improvement stuff so we can get stronger to gain power so that we can have control and have the, you know, have the desired outcomes in our life. And sure, we'll do religious stuff, you know, here and there. But the main thing is we want to be empowered because strength means power. It means control. It means freedom. It means advantage. I mean, it's not an easy thing to go to a guide like the man that we read this morning and, and say, have mercy on me in front of all kinds of people. And so what we find Paul teaching the church is that the strongest person in the entire universe, right? Indeed, outside the universe, the person that every believer is carefully and meticulously being fashioned into the image of, Jesus Christ, verse 2, if your Bible's open, have a look down. He did not please himself. Verse 7, he became a diaconist, a servant. You know what it literally means? It means a, a dust raiser because it was a word picture of a servant running from here and running from there, kicking up dust on behalf of their master. That's your master, Jesus Christ, an errand boy. He became an errand boy for the Jews. Now, we've learned that the believers in the church in Rome were being a little petty, you have people in the church who are trying to be so right about everything 
that not only are they being judgmental, that's chapter 14, verses 4 and 10, they're also hurting, chapter 14, verse 15. They're distressing, causing sorrow, worry to other people in the church to achieve their rightness, okay? So you have Jews and Gentiles arguing over what to eat and what to drink and, and what holy days to recognize. And in that, they're passing judgment, causing harm to the body because they want to do everything right. Now listen to that. They want to do everything right, but in trying to do everything right, they actually begin to hurt each other. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment and answer this question in your head. I wonder if you've ever heard that in, in a sermon. And trying to do everything right, they're actually beginning to hurt each other. You see, they're arguing for answers about matters which ultimately do not matter. So Paul, rather than coming in and trying to settle each individual issue, right, who's right, who's wrong, instead, like he always does, and I hope your Bible's open, he turns us to the risen Christ, that's verse 3 and verse 8 of chapter 15. He turns us to the living word, chapter uh, 15, verses 4, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, and then he prays for them. That's verses 5 and 6 and verse 13. That's a good pastor. That's a good pastor. Turn you to Christ, turn you to his word, and pray, pray, pray. And it's so beautiful. Again, I keep saying this, and it was hard to understand because I'm hoping you'll have uh, pity on me. <laughs> but it takes us to our first point. Number one, accept. All right? So the very first thing that we realize in chapter 15, verse 1, is that Paul labels different people in the church as either strong or weak. You who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, immediately, his readers will have to self-identify. He's not calling out who's weak or strong. They're going to have to self-identify. Now, I don't feel the liberty to label people in the church as strong and weak. I'm not an apostle. He can do that. I'm not going to do that. But what it, is called, what it does call for is, is be honest. The strong should accept they, they're strong. They have power. They've been given the label by an apostle. They are strong. Okay, accept that. That's the first thing. The second thing that you find is that, okay, sorry about this, with great power comes great responsibility. It was just laying there for me. I had to take it, right? With great power comes great responsibility. You who are strong, again, to your Bibles, you don't discard the weak. You don't bully the weak. You don't crush the weak. But do the strong thing. Bear with the failings of the weak. Now, 1 Corinthians, well, we sang that this morning, but, but also 1 Corinthians 13 says, love bears all things. So the strong carry the weak, support the weak, accept the weak, cover over the weak, serve the weak, rearrange their lives for the weak. Cover their weaknesses. Do not expose them. Do not expose them. The strong in the church are being taught to restrain their strength and restrain their liberties, and therefore the, the strong are thought to be honest. You're strong. Okay, be honest. And with that honesty, be thoughtful and attentive to the weak. Okay? So with that great responsibility is not only to your brothers and sisters in the church. I mean, we should understand that. But to everybody in the world, that's verse 2, neighbors, right? To please your neighbor. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. 
I was rethinking everything this morning, and I, and I thought to myself, in my lifetime, you know, in my lifetime growing up, it seemed like whoever was the self-proclaimed, you know, Christian powers that be in America, they were always giving us reasons to be ticked off at the world. You know, there's this secret agenda and that agenda, and they have that agenda, and they have that agenda, and they're coming for this, and they want to take away that. And then you read this. <laughs> and and, and at, least, at the very least, it makes you rethink all that stuff. Please your neighbor, unconverted person here, for their good to build them up. So the discussion here, it clearly follows chapter 14, but then Paul uses that word neighbor in verse 2, and he expands it. Love your neighbor well. Please your neighbor. Do good to your neighbor. And then what he's doing then, he's laying down a strong, powerful, sweeping principle for the strong in Christ. You who are strong, okay, with that great power comes great responsibility, you must be stewards of your power to build, please, and accept. Verse 7, serve those who are weak believers and to serve unbelievers. Okay? Believers, unbelievers. So we say, you know, we live for Christ, and, and that's good. The Christ we say we live for, he says, live for others, including non-believers, okay? Other people, along with Christians, we are too. Now, look at your Bible. Um, this begins in verse 2. Each of us ought to aresco. That's the Greek word. That's in please your neighbor. Please aresco your neighbor. This is what it means. It means to struggle or endeavor to please accommodate yourself to the sentiments and the desires and the interest of your neighbor, to please your neighbor. Now, the, the essential truths of their faith, we're not asked to tank them. We're talking about all the other stuff, the, the secondary matters. Please your neighbor for their good. Agathos is the Greek word, and it means intrinsically good, good in nature, good in every area of your neighbor's life, pleasant to your neighbor, agreeable, secondary issues to your neighbor, neighbor, joyful, upright. That, that is our desired outcome from them in order to, and again, the Greek word oikodomeia, to build them up, to edify them, to teach them. Okay, teach them what? Okay, to teach them that this is Christianity. And it is so awesome, isn't it? Isn't it a loving thing to please your neighbor and to serve your neighbor and to love your neighbor for their good, just like our master did to us? So we don't, we don't compromise on the essential truths of the faith. No, but we bend our life for their good. Now, that's why the whole empowerment thing, I'm going to empower, I'm going to get power. It's like, okay, maybe turn it down a little bit. My, my strength that I've been given by God, I, I turn it to to please, to bring good, to edify my neighbor. Loved ones, there is nothing like this on the planet. This means to me that, you know, Christians are not a bunch of uptight, holding our handkerchiefs, wringing our hands, dull, 
lifeless, complaining about everything and everyone, worry warts. That's not us. I mean, we're not equipped to go around all the time and to tell our neighbors, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. We can tell them that we did it wrong and we have a Savior who we'd like you to introduce, we introduced you to, and he rescued us by his grace because you know what? We keep doing it wrong and he keeps giving us grace and mercy. And you know, we're your servants because our servant Jesus said to be your servant. So I'm here for your good to build you up and to serve you. I mean, they're going to be like, what? You weirdo, <laughs> right? At first. And of course, in all that, we have this supreme example, verse 3 in Jesus Christ, who, and that he could have justifiably lived to please himself, but he did not. And, and the logic of Paul is super simple. Instead of causing our neighbor to stumble, that's chapter 14, verses 13, verses 20, verses 21. Instead of tearing down our neighbor, chapter 14, verse 20. Instead of damaging our neighbor emotionally, physically, spiritually, chapter 14, verse 15, we are told to please our neighbor and to build our neighbor up. I have in my notes, Christianity is about construction and not demolition, right? Construction and not demolition. This is Jesus. John 13, by this, everyone, the world, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, yes. Leviticus 19, 18, forget about the wrongs people do to you. Don't try to get even. That's Romans 12 as well. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I am the Lord. Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer them. You know, I, I can promise you this. Whatever you did for one of my brothers or sisters, remember those are the people who were naked, the people didn't have food, the people who were in prison. Jesus identifies with them. No matter how, how unimportant they seem, you do it for them, you do it for me. So we strengthen their conscience. Okay, this is the unbeliever's conscience to know that this is Christianity. It is quite beautiful. I mean, at least it should be. And we, of course, we strengthen our conscience because we know that in service to our king, we're following the line. So Paul is saying the strong should accept that they are not to use their power to build themselves up and enlarge themselves up only. They're not to use their power to dominate a circumstance, to dominate a situation. Don't use your power to simply make yourself comfortable. In other words, what Paul says not to do to please yourself. And if you think about it, if you, if you, this is the hard part. If you really apply it, and this is why we need a savior, if you really apply it, it just, it, everything. Okay, finances. It means that Christians with money are to look at their money as given to them by God. Okay, to, to do your thing, absolutely, but you can also enrich those who need it, those without it. Right? Money not simply used to please yourself. Think about where you live. I mean, this might be new to you. Instead of asking, where's the most comfortable place for me to live, pleasing yourself, you should ask the better question, where would I be most useful in living for God and others? Where's a good place where God could put me so I could serve my neighbor? Church leadership. That means that Christians who are in leadership of a church are not to arrange the ministries simply to please ourselves. 
You know, to make everybody comfortable and happy. We've got to think about the outsider. We've got to think about the skeptic all the time, our neighbors and relationships. We know this. You know, it's really simple to be around our own kind and to be around people who build us up emotionally, which is a good thing. But Paul's like, you have to be willing to relate to and love people who are a drain to you. So, you know, we don't walk into a room as Christians and say, okay, are these people, am I going to enjoy these people? It's like, I walk into a room and am I going to be able to emotionally, physically, spiritually serve these people? Right? Think about, and this is me, I thought about teens. Because, you know, sometimes when people talk to pastors, they always worry about the future and then they tell you know, how bad the teen situation is now, and I can't believe, and in my day, and all that kind of stuff. And so, just by chance, in a moment of literally panic, I was reading the New York Times. This is March 24th, 2022. It's an op-ed piece. Twelve teenagers, and what adults don't get about their lives. Now, personally, I have a lot of confidence in the teens that I know, and it makes me more secure about the future of our world in light of the ones I know. And so this is what the article goes. Several of the teenagers felt worried about being judged. This is, I mean, every adult worries about that, about what they say. No matter if the answers was their opinion, some were worried about saying the wrong thing. If you're not super educated on a topic, it's scary to put your opinion out there. And so they were talking to the teens, and one of the questions they asked them is, your 40-year future self, If you had a chance to ask any question to your 40-year-old future self, what would you ask them? Just think about it for a second. What do you think the average teen now would ask about their 40-year-old future self? You know what I have in my notes? God bless them. Thomas, I'd probably ask myself how my family is doing because they're really important to me. Eva, I'd probably ask what I'm doing with my life, career-wise, and how my family is doing. Payton, yeah, I'd ask myself, how did it turn out? Are my parents still around? I feel like if they're not around, it'd be a lot more difficult for me. Emmanuel, my career and then my family. Owen, I'd ask how my family is. Nicholas, I would ask what my family's doing and how the world is going. Gabby, I'd probably want to know if I was happy and healthy and if my parents were okay. I I don't want to give you, I want to give you the honest picture. So there's a person named America. That's their name. Listen to what America wanted. (laughs) I would ask if I had a steady income, (laughs) if I was making good money, and probably if I was just genuinely happy with the life that I've created. America, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight kids. Don't slant, don't, don't insult America, Joe, right? That's the next point. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. All right, so number one point, accept you have power. If you're strong, you self-identify. If you have the power, use it wisely. Accept with that power comes great responsibility. Third, accept Christ who had all power, did exactly what is being asked of us here. 
And there again to the Bible, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And that's our second point, don't insult. The, the point says insult, I should have, but don't. <laughs> Verse three, the insults of those you have insulted have fallen on me. And that word insult here means to damage, disgrace, and cause doubt, causing darkness to fall on a person's reputation. I'm going to say that again. To insult, whether it's another believer or your neighbor, is to damage, disgrace, cause doubt, causing darkness to fall on a person's reputation. And so what Paul does is he takes that from Psalm 69. And Psalm 69 is a a beautiful psalm that describes the unjust, unreasonable, suffering of a righteous man. It's, it's a prophetic psalm about Jesus Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, New Testament, it's quoted at least four other times. And so what Paul is saying is Christ so completely identifies himself with the name, the cause, the will, and the glory of the Father that the insults intended for God, Psalm 69, fall upon him. But then he takes it deeper. In the same way, in the same way, Christ so completely identifies with humanity. Okay, so not just believers, with humanity, our neighbors who are insulted. Those who have been insulted, those insults have fallen on him. Now, again, I have to take you down this line. Bear with me. If we insult our civic leaders, our state leaders, our national leaders in the federal government... If we insult a person who wants to identify themselves as another gender other than the one that they were born with, if we want to insult someone's sexual preference other than heterosexual, if parents want to insult their kids, if if kids want to insult their parents, if husbands, wives, wives, husbands, if we insult our neighbor, other Christians, if we insult unbelievers, whoever, when we do that, it is so clear. We are insulting Christ. The insults of those you have insulted, damaged, disgraced, darkened the reputation of. We have damaged, disgraced, and darkened the reputation of Christ. That says a lot because I think everyone in this room would admit two things. One, we've been insulted. And two, we have insulted. And so what we have in this person, Jesus Christ... He literally just takes on everything. He didn't choose his own pleasures. He didn't make it easy for himself. That's the wisdom of the world. No. He takes on the faults and the the failures of others. He covers over them. How many, there were four songs we sang, or five songs, two of the songs carry, he carries, he carries, he carries. And it's like, that's us. We carry, we carry, we carry the faults, the burdens, the failures of others. Which takes us to our third word, unite. You see it there? That's, that's the prayer in verse 5. But of course, before we get to 5, we get to 4. So he quotes from Psalm 69, and now he says this. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Okay, so there it is, your Old Testament, my Old Testament, when we read it, it teaches us, it gives us endurance and encouragement so that we would have hope. Okay, hope about what? 
Well, in the context, hope and the way Paul is calling strong Christians to live. That's the context. It's not an easy way. It's not an easy way in these bodies to live that way. So Paul goes to Christ, and then he goes to the Scripture. Now, he's going to quote, beginning in verse 9, a whole lot of Old Testament. But before we get there, he's simply saying, for the weak and the strong, if you guys are going to get along in the church, then you strong people are going to have to do something. You're going to have to care for the weak. We're going to have to live in a way where the design of our life is not only to please ourselves, but for others, for their good to build them up. That's not only in the church, but if we're going to get along with the world, it's the same thing. I mean, if they're going to hate us, it's because Christ and him crucified and our allegiance to that. And then he said, read your Old Testament because they, they were written to teach us that through endurance and encouragement, we may have hope. But can you look at verse 5? Notice that the endurance, encouragement that we need to have is not self-created. That's why Paul prays. He's praying that God's power would help us to live God's way and states that the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures is given to us by God. Verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement. In other words, endurance and encouragement that we should have is given to us by God. And it tells us then this, because the prayer is about unity in the church and unity in so many other ways. May, the, may God give you a spirit of unity among yourselves. So what he's saying is there's no method to create unity. That unity comes from discipleship. Look at, again, your Bibles. As we follow Christ. In other words, unity does not come when we seek unity directly. Rather, it's a byproduct of seeking Jesus Christ. As you follow Jesus Christ. Listen to J.C. Ryle. It's real short. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. So we're not trying to seek unity for unity's sake. Unity as we follow Christ. Following Christ assures unity. And one of the reasons why the church gets together and worships is because of the unity of the gospel. Verse 6, one heart and one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as you follow Christ, then the byproduct, one heart, one mouth, glorifying our God and Father. So there's no way to glorify God with one mouth and one heart unless the weak and the strong Christians are singing and praying together. That's verse 6. So think about what we've already said already, weak and strong. What are the things that often break unity? What often breaks unity in Christ's church is that someone will just label whoever that person is, sees the church as weak, insufficient, not meeting needs. And so by saying that, they're strong. And the strong in their minds ought to say, weak, weak, weak. And because you're weak, 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 I can't stay. Do you find anything like that in your master, Jesus Christ? He flips it. I'm strong. Because I'm strong, I ain't quitting you. I ain't quitting you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take your insults. I am with you to the end. Together. And that's verse 7, right? 
Accept one another as Christ accepted you. Why did Christ accept Joe Franzone? Well, Joe Franzone was just a stellar, strong young man. You should have seen him in his early days. He was quite fantastic, very religious, prayed all the time, read all the time. Woo! He was a giver and a do-gooder. That guy, you... And none of that's true, but you understand what I'm saying. Christ accepted me because he's a gracious and good God who loves sinners like me. So you see... This is where legalism comes in. If you're the kind of person who needs to constantly justify yourself by your works, by your strength, there's a couple of things happening. There's a lot of anxiety in you because you know God wants perfection. And you know deep down that you can give it. You can't give it, but you can pretend. So the person who's trying to earn their salvation and earn their standing with God has not grasped the fullness of the gospel as you follow Christ. So they're trying to quiet their conscience. And one of the ways is to compare themselves to others, elevate themselves, reduce others, strong, weak. I'm strong, God. I'm strong. And they have to keep convincing themselves they're strong. How? By their works. And not by the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. So there's that deep insecurity Oftentimes a very critical spirit that leads to disputes, i.e. the church here. And also the need to justify themselves. So, so not only are they dealing with it internally, but they're dealing with it externally by saying, you know, why aren't you doing this? Because I'm doing this. Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't they doing this? I'm doing this. Why isn't this happening? That, again, the Roman church. Why are they eating only vegetables? What's wrong with them? So when a person grasps the gospel, differences of opinions, of practices, they they are not insurmountable. You can get over with them. With your neighbor, your neighbor. And that's why verse 7 ends in justification. In fact, you can tell how much a person understands the gospel. You can understand how you understand the gospel by thinking about how much you love and serve people who are deeply flawed and deeply different than you. Do you say to yourself, if God overlooks my sin in Christ, how can I fail to do so to my neighbor or my brother and sister? Do I think I'm more righteous than God? Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You're like, what is that verse doing there? This is what I think is happening. What he's saying is Christ served the Jews who despised him. Christ served the Jews who despised him for God and for them. They needed saving. They couldn't do it. They hated him. So for their good and for God's glory, Christ became a servant of the Jews. Okay, that takes us to our final point, expect. Okay, expect what? Well, expect God to keep his promises. So what the Jews could not do, God had to do. Ultimately in Jesus Christ, but God had to do it. And so what Paul does is you see all those Old Testament verses? All those Old Testament verses are going to take us to one place. God's people didn't keep their promise, but God kept his promise. 
so that Jews and Gentiles can be together forever and ever in God's church world without end. Verse 9. Okay? For it, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Paul quotes from 2 Samuel 22. That's David's song. Pay attention to that. It's a song that David sings near the end of his life after he had failed to be salt and light to the Gentiles. He was a good king, but he wasn't like Messiah king. So David failed in his promises, but God is saying, and David is saying, God will be faithful to his promise. I will praise you among the Gentiles because God will make it so. Verse 10. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. A quote from Deuteronomy 32. It's a song of Moses. Again, at the end of Moses' life, where he failed to enter the promised land. He failed. And though Moses failed, God did not fail. And Moses is singing it out loud. Do you see it there? I'm going to praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praises to him, everyone. Verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praise to him, all you people, that is from Psalm 117. It's a worship psalm. It's called a Hillel. And what it means is in the company of God, God's people, Jew and Gentiles, okay, they had failed. God's people had failed to be salt and light, but it doesn't matter. God's going to keep his promise. God's going to make it happen. God's going to do it. Though you have failed, I will be faithful, God says, and I will not fail. Verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations, that the Gentiles will hope in him. Again, Isaiah 11. Okay, Isaiah knew that God was going to discipline his people because of their sin. Their people had failed God, but God is faithful to his promise. He's going to bring the Messiah and through the Messiah, all the nations will, will be blessed. So what did the apostle just done? And stay with me. He has gone to a book of history, to Samuel. He's gone to the book of law, Deuteronomy. He's gone to the book of poetry, Psalms. He's gone to a book of prophecy, Isaiah. All of them are songs except one. But one book after another says, everything that was written in the former times, verse 4, is written to say to us that our God is a God of promise and our God is a faithful God. He's going to be faithful to his purposes. His purposes will not fail and he will bring all people together, Jew and Gentile. He will do it. May the God who gives you endurance and encouragement, may he help you expect that to happen. And if you would, be part of that experience. Be part of the solution and not be part of the problem. All right. So the issue here, Jew, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians struggling over secondary issues, and the struggle is real. Paul is saying to them, God is so gracious. His plan is so sovereign that you Jewish people don't have to have any grudges against the Gentiles, even though they, they, they failed God to be salt and light. I mean, the Israel, they failed God. And the Gentiles, you don't have to have any grudges against the Jews because in the case of the Jews who were considered weak and they were weak, they did a lot of pitiful things. God used their weakness as the very purpose to bring you Gentiles to Christ. That's what he's saying there. So if you like, God worked out his saving purposes through weakness and failures of his chosen people. Is that not encouraging? God worked out his saving purposes through the weakness and the failures of his saving people. Go read your Old Testament, have endurance and encouragement with that. So Paul is saying, strong people, turn it down. Help the weak. 
You, you Gentiles don't hold grudges against the weak. It's because through the weak, the Jews that you were brought, verse 7, to God said you can accept one another in order to bring praise to God. Now we're going to close and notice how Paul ends. He ends in a prayer. So if you've been hanging with me through this, this is, this is going to encourage you and this will cause you to rejoice. Look at what it says, verse 13, okay? After everything that's said, may the God of hope, so our God is a God of hope, but Okay, so he wants us to know him this way. Okay, he will complete what he's begun. I looked up the word hope. Here's some definitions. Confidence, may the God of confidence, expectation, the God of expectations, the God of certainty, may the God of certainty, the God you can expect good from, may the God, that God, may the God of hope, Fill you with all joy and all peace. Now stay with me. Literally the phrase means fills you, fill you with every kind of joy. Pas is the Greek word there. It means all kinds of joys in every aspect of your life. So not just like joy, but all the different bits and pieces of your life. Mother, wife, sister, worker, uh, friend, Christian. All the different pieces of your life. Every kind of joy and every kind of peace that you can receive all of it as a human being. And the word peace there, it's nothing feels like it's missing. That's when we have peace, right? There's nothing that we feel like is missing. Every kind of joy and every kind of peace, may the God of hope give you every kind of joy and every kind of peace, right? So that, so that as you trust in him, okay, so that you may overflow with hope. It's, the word is literally hyper hope. Exceeding the ordinary bounds of hope. That's how it reads in Greek, hyper hope. It's hyper hope because you're being acted upon by God. Okay, that's why it's a prayer. Do you understand that? You, you can't do this, right? Hence the Old Testament scriptures we just read. None of the best could do it. David failed, Moses failed, the people failed. Okay, you're being acted upon on God to have this hope so that you would overflow, not with just hope, but with hyper hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I think about this, I don't know what to say to that. It's a good way to live, isn't it? Joy, peace, hyper hope by the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust in him. Don't worry, the end's like 20 seconds away. <laughs> In other words, you're being carried. Okay? You're being carried. This is what Paul is saying. Church, Roman church, church, West Glasgow Chapel. You're being carried. So stay in his arms and stay together. It's unity. Stay in his arms. He's going to be faithful to his promises. And stay together weak and strong. One last thing. Robin Dunbar has a book. It's, it's kind of new. It's called Friends. And she was writing about friendships and tons of studies in the book. But one of the things she said, which could be expected, is friendship is hugely dependent on our ability to be skillfully understanding of and considerate towards others. We just did that. But then she says this, her research suggests 
that the average person can expect to have close relationships break down about every 2.3 years. What's that? About 27, 28 months. The average person in America can expect to have close relationships break down about every 2.3 years. That's roughly 30 relationship breakdowns over an adulthood. And the only thing I want to say to you about that, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. There's a better way. And, it, and it's in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. I Please help us to understand this. I know it was a lot in the scriptures and, and the readings, and I, but I know that deep in our hearts we know what Paul is saying. And so we thank you for those two prayers, God. And, and if it pleases you, we'll just, we'll just end our service to you today in worship with those two prayers. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and one mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may you, the God of hope, may you fill us with all joy and all peace as we trust in you. So that we would overflow with hope, God, hyper hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for being a good and gracious God. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for being our servant so that this prayer would be heard. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.